Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And welcome back. This is our season four premiere, and we will be talking all about Casablanca for its 80th anniversary. This is going to be a big episode. I'm excited. Yeah, me too. I'm really excited to be back. We had a nice couple of weeks off after the Oscars, and now I think I'm ready to tackle one of the great American classics. Mm-hmm. So if you look on Letterboxd or IMDb, anywhere like that, you might see that Casablanca has a 1942 release date, but this movie did technically come out in the U.S., in 1943 and was eligible for the 1943 Oscars. It actually had its world premiere on November 26, 1942, but then didn't come out until January 23rd, 1943. And a lot of that has to do with World War II and its importance Mm -hmm. historically as a propaganda film as well and why they sort of rushed to release it around particular dates. So But yeah, there's a lot, a lot to unpack with this movie, and let's just jump right in. So, description here. In Casablanca, Morocco, in December 1941, a cynical American expatriate meets a former lover with unforeseen complications. This was directed by Michael Curtiz and written by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch. It stars Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Henreid, Claude Rains, Julie Wilson, Sidney Greenstreet, and Peter Lorre. We will mention more in the cast later on. Definitely was some of my favorite moments too. But yeah, this has a pretty intensive history with its production. It was made at Warner Brothers. And we had one of our listeners, The Futurist, reach out on Twitter about a book about the production. And I know you've read it or have it. So I know you can kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so this book, it's called We'll Always Have Casablanca. It's written by Noah Eisenberg. I highly recommend it to any fan of Casablanca. It's a pretty quick read too because it's just filled with facts about the history, but it's written in a way that, you know, you feel like you were there and like learning about how it was adapted from a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's and how those rights were bought and how there are all sorts of stories around, you know, who came up with the famous lines. Like, was it Humphrey Bogart? Was it the Epstein twins? It has a lot of lore like that baked into the text. So it is a book that I highly recommend. There's also, if you want to, a podcast, the Izzy and Murtada Picture Show, and they actually interviewed Noah Eisenberg on that show. So definitely listen to that after you listen to our episode. The book is also a great audiobook. So if you want to listen to the audiobook, it's on Audible. I started listening to sections of it again in preparation for this episode because I do love this movie and there's just so much history in it that I think makes the viewing experience that much better. Yeah, from the historical context to all of the rewrites and the different writers and how much of Howard Koch's screenplay or what he worked on actually made it into the movie, that's also like rumors and lore there too. So it's it was really fun looking back, researching about this film, but also rewatching it. It's just so memorable and I can feel that With time, I'll not only appreciate it more, but I can understand that 80 years later, why we're still talking about this movie as one of the greats, one of the great Best Picture winners, just all of those superlatives. Yeah, it really is, I think, held up in such a high regard when you think about American cinema and classic cinema. I'm eager to talk about that and what you think the reason for that maybe is, because it is quite different, I think, from some of the other films that we see on these best of lists. It's number three on the AFI Top 100 after Citizen Kane and The Godfather. Funnily enough, we started season three with the 50th anniversary of The Godfather. But yeah, I'm curious, you know, what is your relationship with Casablanca? And why do you think it's ranked so highly on all of these lists? One, it's just a really memorable film. There are so many aspects to it and genres included in it that can pull so many different audiences in. There's romance, there's action, there's mystery, There's drama. So I think in that way, it appeals to a lot of people. The first time I rewatched it, and I had read 
something about this elsewhere of like nobody really expected much from it because it was a studio film that was churned out and I mean, yes, the historical context, I think, heightened everything, but there wasn't special attention to it. I mean, they paid a lot to get the rights to the play. But other than that, nobody expected it to be this amazing success, or at least to what it has become. But when you rewatch it, I think there are certain elements like also the anti-Semitism and the Nazis and that part of it hits so hard and reading that there were actual refugees in that climactic scene where they're singing La Marseillaise and they were crying. You know, it's like there are so many things that hold true to it being released in 1942 during World War II. I think that is chilling, which again just adds another layer to the film itself and let alone the actors. Like you have Humphrey Bogart who... I don't know, we'll talk about him at one point, but I feel like he was known for action and adventure, and now he's in this romantic role, so I feel like that was a huge shift for him. And Ingrid Bergman, who we know of now, obviously, but at the time, she hadn't been in many successful films. So this definitely catapulted her into the spotlight, and we can talk about how they frame her as well in the film, but there are just so many little things that stick with you And there are books written about this. Like, there's so much to talk about. But what about you? Why do you love it? When did you first see it? What's your relationship with it? I first saw it when I was really young. So when I was a little kid. And I do remember, even when I was young, knowing that the movie was important. But I don't really think that that influenced the way that I felt about the movie. Because I think that the power of the film... And the power that it's it's held over me over time is that it is just very well made and highly rewatchable. It's a very watchable, lean film with no fat on it. I think it's one of the most well-written screenplays of all time. I think that the way that exposition is used in the film is brilliant. You know how I am about exposition. I get on directors and screenwriters all the time when specific characters exist just to deliver monologues about what something means or to solely ask questions of another character. I'm thinking of the Elliot Page character in Inception who exists solely to explain things to the audience. We don't have that in Casablanca. The way that we learn about these characters, it never comes off as heavy-handed or over-the-top. And it's doled out very purposefully and subtly. It's just, I think it's so smart. Like the way that you learn about Rick's past and see his transformation as a character slowly over the film is so well done. And the way you learn about, you know, what the French resistance is, the Third Reich, why they're in Casablanca, the way that the MacGuffin of the exit visa is used. This is writing that it's easy to understand, it keeps your attention, and it's a story that I think works in any time period. You could put Casablanca as a story in 2023 and it would make sense. If you think about refugees today and hatred by political groups, like that story is tale as old as time and yes, it's incredibly timely for 1941, 42, 43, but even more so, I think it really is something that any viewer can watch and can understand and get sucked into. I also think the way that the love story is used, it's one of the greatest, you know, cinematic love stories ever, and it doesn't feel to me like a stereotypical love triangle. I think it actually adds to the political dynamic and to the story at the center, which is about a political crisis, really. Which I think for me at first viewing, so I watched this twice. You are aware of my first viewing. I don't know if you did about my second. But the first time, you know, this movie is set up. You have that early voiceover narration explaining where we are, and it is very sharp. I agree. Like, if you're not paying attention and you miss one sentence, you're like, you're done, and you're just watching this map traveling to Casablanca and you're like what's happening so you like really have to stay focused which I love and the main plot that is introduced is two German carriers are murdered in neutral France and we need to find who this killer is 
But this mystery is not even the plot Mm -mm. because we're introduced to Captain Raynault and he's like, oh, we already know who the murderer is. He's going to be at Rick's tonight. Everybody goes to Rick's. (laughs) So it's like, I was like, wait, so what's the story about? And then it transforms into this romance, which, you know, I don't like really care for. Like rom-coms really aren't my thing. But on second viewing... It definitely hit more like having those flashbacks in there to Paris, I think, really bring home that story. And I think it's just beautifully done how they have the rain falling on that letter like tears Mm -hmm. when they show it on screen. So I think that does really hit home and it does subvert expectations in a way turning into the story and then you get to the end that changes things again. So it keeps you on your toes the whole time, which I appreciate. Okay, good. I'm I'm glad that you came around on the love story a little bit. You know, the the love story between Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart's characters of Rick and Ilsa is, yes, like I said, one of the most iconic love stories that we have in cinema. But I think what's so interesting about it is that Bogart, up to this point, was never considered a romantic lead at all. And Mm -hmm. when you see them together, it's sort of disconcerting at first because she is truly the most beautiful person you can imagine seeing on screen. I mean, Mm -hmm. she's just gorgeous. And the way that Arthur Edison lights her, she looks Mm -hmm. like a goddess, like an angel. It's like there's this sort of gauzy haze around her at all times. She always looks bright and luminescent. And Humphrey Bogart is not someone who I think of when I think of a man you'd you'd give up everything for. (laughs) But but I think that makes the romance even better, that she is kind of out of his league when it comes to looks, but he has, there's more to him underneath. The entire character of Rick throughout the film is someone who is more than meets the eye, right? Like, at first he's neutral but you find out these little bits and pieces about him and his background throughout the film that show you okay there is more to him why isn't he taking a side why is he just this paragon of neutrality but what i love about that is that at this point historically the u.s hadn't entered the war so humphrey bogart and rick specifically you know this american expatriate in casablanca with rick's Cafe American, he is sort of the stand-in for the U.S. Like, he is the U.S. personified, and their political stance really put on screen, personified in a character. So for audiences at the time, it was a big deal, I think, to be able to see maybe their own viewpoints and to see that reflected on screen and be inspired and know where they should stand. Again, like I mentioned, it's a propaganda film. So it's sort of brilliant how the script uses this character to show the American stance and idea at the time and to have him not just transform throughout the film, but get to his roots to understand that the position that he can then take is actually where he should have been all along. I think that that's really, really smart in the script. And the beginning, like you mentioned, with Ugarte, who is a great character, even though he's not in much of the film, I think Peter Mm -hmm. Lorre, he's always excellent. We talked about him a bit in our episode on the Maltese Falcon, but I love how this character is used. And he's sort of this, like, wily character, and he exists... One, to kick off the story and to get it going, but also because he is the one who has the letters of transit that he Mm -hmm. got by murdering these German couriers. So, and that really, having the letters of transit allows the story to keep going. So again, I love how this script really moves and every single character and everything that happens on screen has a purpose for what's to come. And in talking about the romance... We're kind of hinting at these subtleties and how they met in Paris. And we learned that at the time, Ilsa was with Laszlo. But there are also things that they had to change in the script. And there are other things too, like obscenities or the hints that Captain Reynolds might be gay. They couldn't reference any of this explicitly because of the Hayes Code, which I thought was interesting because they couldn't show Ilsa leaving her husband, leaving Laszlo for Rick. We don't have this today, so to me it was a twist, but back then it was like 
she can't leave him. How are we going to do this? It wasn't, is she going to leave him? So I thought that was interesting too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love that Ingrid Bergman is here. Initially, they had considered a few other actresses because of what I mentioned earlier. You know, they thought about getting Anne Sheridan, Heidi Lamar, Michelle Morgan. But that first moment when she walks into Rick's, you're just gobsmacked. And then that first close-up, mm-hmm. you have that season one drag race shimmer, you know, <laughs> glow to her, that filter. But it works. Like, it's Ingrid Bergman, my God. And her smile, like, whenever she smiles at Rick, mm-hmm. and oh, my God, you just, like, your heart melts whenever you see her. And every subsequent time she walks into Rick's the white dress to Mm -hmm. like everything and she is this like pristine thing and in the end this is what allows Rick to choose a side and to see his inner turmoil going on and why he is neutral and learning that you know this relationship with her ruined him basically and he put a big wall up so yeah I like that metaphor for the United States too of like we need to choose a side before Ingrid Bergman even arrives, we just learn so much about the state of the world and the different factions and how they can interact at a place like Rick's. It's just, it's so interesting to me how you have Rick, who's this American, hasn't taken a side, who doesn't drink with his customers, who interacts really at the beginning in the same way with everyone who's there. And this is such an international cast. That's another thing that I think is very bold, especially for the time. Only three of the credited actors are American. So this is a cast where a lot of the people who are in the cast had experienced similar things that our characters had experienced. And that, I think, adds a layer of authenticity to the film, but it also shows its importance and how I think part of the reason why it's persisted through time. But yeah, you have Captain Raynaud, who Claude Rains, I think, gives one of my favorite performances in the movie. I think he's excellent. And Captain Raynaud, the police prefect, he shows like how the, the Vichy French were at that time and how, you know, France was technically divided and how... He was one of those people, he was part of the faction who followed the Germans. And then you have Conrad Veidt, who plays Major Strasser of the Third Reich. You have Sidney Greenstreet as Ferrari, who is this other sort of corrupt individual who owns the Blue Parrot. So it's this amalgamation of so many different kinds of people, which makes everything feel, I think, very tense and you get a very, it's it's just a good use also of the setting where you can have all of these different people who can coexist in one space and the tensions that can arise from that and how that isn't going to last, right? Like you're going to have to choose a side eventually. And that's mm-hmm. why I love the little bit when we see Renault near the end dump out the bottle of Vichy water to mm-hmm. show in quite a pointed way but a subtle way too that he is done with all of that and he's with rick and against the germans and that's the way that americans should be too so i like that and when we finally get ilsa and victor laszlo walking in it's kind of unceremonious they just stroll in it's not like we get this big music cue and here they come or the camera does anything different to show them walking in. They're kind of walking in like any other patron. And what I like about this is that we've already talked about Victor Laszlo, but we haven't talked about Ilsa. We know that Victor is this really important figure. We know that he's a leader of the revolution and why he's Mm -hmm. important. So when they walk in and you see Sam at the piano, I can't believe we haven't talked about him yet. Sam, such an important character, but When we see Sam's face at the piano, I think the first time you're watching it and you see his face, you think, oh, he's reacting to Victor coming in because he's Mm -hmm. this big deal and they can't believe he's there and he's coming through and it's everyone's talking about it. But then you cut back to him and see this look of sadness in his eyes and you realize that he is reacting to seeing Ilsa, not to seeing Victor and how that story is introduced. And I think the way it's introduced is really beautiful. It's this like perfect intersection of the political and the personal and how those things can never really be divided. So I guess, yeah, getting more into this romance, because 
you mention almost when they meet. Mm -hmm. But before that happens, the captain comes over to the table and Ilsa asks about Sam. And then it goes into being at Rick's. And then she's like, who's Rick? Which, I don't know. If I had this big love affair in this other city, in the city of love in Paris... And his name is Ricky or Richard, and you're in a bar called Rick's. Wouldn't you be curious? Wouldn't you be like, "Oh, Rick, who?" To be like, "Oh, I know a Rick," or no, that it was just like across the world and like didn't even she didn't even think about it. That to me is like a little fishy too. Well, I think you know it's very different than, but clearly an influence on La La Land at the end when Mia goes to Seb's with her new husband who is, Mm -hmm. you know, not the love of her life, apparently. But it's different in the fact that when she sees the Seb sign, she's like, oh, no, like, this is this is it. This is definitely his. Yeah. Yeah. But this I mean, I feel like it's partially the fact that she didn't know that Rick was going to Casablanca and Mm -hmm. that like this would be his bar. There's nothing in the script or in their relationship, I think, that would indicate that he would own a bar in Casablanca. Right. I know. I think I'm being very critical. (laughs) So I think it's probably also just kind of like, not out of sight, out of mind, but like her mind is on other things right now. Like she's very concerned about getting out of the country with her husband Mm -hmm. who escaped from a concentration camp hidden on a train car. So I think she's just very focused on that and on getting to America, which I feel like also I love in the story because there's this tension of we need to get out. Everyone here needs to get out. It's this, like, transitory place. And, yeah, I feel like she was probably really focused on that and not thinking about it. I don't know. It is kind of funny when she's like, oh, like, he looks familiar. (laughs) Right. So the other part, this is all my, like, critical part about the romance. Uh So she feels so strongly about Laszlo and trying to get him out. How does she just flip on a dime when she sees Rick and they, like, rekindle this love that they've had? And she's like, no, I want to leave with you and not him. And then he's the one that has to say, no, you're going with him. I think that she feels guilty a little bit about leaving him in Paris in that way and saying, like, we'll never see each other again. This is it. I'm sure there's a little bit of guilt there. He also, he was the fling. Like, he was the romance that was introduced to her and created for her at a time when she thought her husband was dead and she didn't know what to do. And she was in Paris and it was just this, like, very magical, romantic thing that had to end. So, of course, she's going to want to revisit that, especially because she's partially with Victor Laszlo because she feels a duty to be with him. One, I do think she loves him, too. I think you can love multiple people. Maybe that makes me an Ilsa. I don't know. But um, I I think that she feels like she has to support Victor, too. And she, again, he's her husband. She still loves him. But also, she never thought she was going to see Rick again. So now that she sees Rick again, she's immediately taken back to that place and to that state of mind that she never thought she would be in again. So I think, I kind of think it's understandable. Like there's danger surrounding it. It's tempting. She needs to, she wants to not necessarily fix things with him, but explain what happened because she probably never thought she could. I think she's also kind of an avoidant person. That's just kind of how her character is. Like she, she never gave him an explanation in the first place. And They never really knew much about each other. Remember, like, in the Paris scenes Mm -hmm. when they're like, oh, like, don't ask questions, you know? Like, they never really get deeper. So I also think part of it is, like, the danger surrounding the situation that just heightens your emotions and, you know, makes you want to live your life to the fullest. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably influencing some of it. Yeah. I mean, all of the criticism aside, it's an incredible screenwriting tactic and idea Mm -hmm. to preface the relationship in these characters in this way and then go back and have them explaining the things to each other Mm -hmm. the reasoning but also you know explaining to the audience and having the audience connect to this or relate to this story which i think in elements are relatable for sure okay so i'm gonna ask you this if you're ilsa 
and you walk in to Rick's, are you just ignoring him? Like, are you are you not going to... Are you just like kind of like, this was severed long ago. I'm not going down this path. Was that a more realistic thing to you? Or is it just her being there in the I mean, first the... place? That's too much. <laughs> I mean, the other problem that I have is that I'm just not into Rick or... I would say Bogart as Rick. Mm, interesting. As a romantic lead or a character, performance, all of it? I think it's partially all of it. And I don't think it's that we never saw him as a romantic lead before, but I still feel like he has this big wall up the entire time, even after he sends her on the plane. So I feel like he's not really somebody I would want to be with, mm. even though we see them having this like overly romantic affair in Paris. And realizing that they love each other equally. But if I think about it in her terms, where this is somebody that I would change, I guess, the trajectory of my life for, I don't think you can ignore him. Mm -hmm. So I think the way that he treats her and kind of guilting her and her feeling guilty and wanting to explain everything, I think like that's all right. It's just I didn't fully buy into it watching it unfold. Hmm. Okay, I... Also, don't love Humphrey Bogart as a romantic lead for myself personally. Like, I am not attracted to him. But I do think that the way that Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart play off of each other, I definitely believe it and understand, like, the attraction and why she would want to go back to him and why he would have been so into her and why he's mad at her. And ha they have all these really strong, conflicting emotions based on what happened and I, I get that. And I love how Michael Curtiz had Humphrey Bogart stand still and always had Ingrid Bergman go to him. I think that's really smart because it sort of tricks the audience into thinking that he is someone who would attract her. I think that's a really smart direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mm -hmm. Humphrey Bogart, he didn't <laughs> think he could be a romantic lead either. He wasn't the type of actor who was known for parts like this. He fit the role, I think, much more in the person who is sort of the, the neutral, but who is able to kind of stabilize everything else and critique what's going on at the same time. Um, that's sort of how he was in the Maltese Falcon as well, and I think what audiences had come to expect. I don't know. I, I like Rick. I think I like the wall being up because I think the wall being up, one, makes sense because if you think about who Rick is and who Rick was, he was the type of person who we find out through little details throughout the script. I think he used to be a bit more courageous, maybe, and who would have been a bit more out there. All of these little times that he had gotten into trouble before, um, whether it was like dealing arms in Ethiopia or mm -hmm. um, like things like that, I think that shows maybe how he was. And with everything that happened with Ilsa, we don't get a ton of other backstory about him, which I really like. I think it kind of makes sense that he's just this guy who doesn't want to show his cards. And again, like that being, you know, a, a stand-in for the American experience and position at the time makes sense as well. I don't know. I kind of like that walls up, withdrawn type of character, though. That's something that always appeals to me. In storytelling, I'm always really curious, like what's behind the wall. So you feel like we eventually see everything that he's holding back? I don't think so, but I also don't think you need to. At least I don't need to. I, I feel like there's there's some power in knowing that we will never really know how Rick feels completely. Like we know he loves her, and he's able to show that again in the film in the present day context, which I think is is a lot for that character and is is really important, but I I think we kind of know everything that we need to mm -hmm. know about Rick. I think that he, by the end of the film, and, you know, that, that perfect line, you know, as he walks off into the distance with Renault, and he says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That sort of shows, like, the walls are a bit down, like, barriers have kind of been mm -hmm. broken, and it shows where he stands in a way that feels right for his character. I feel like this were made today. I mean, also back then they had an alternate ending. They had an alternate end line for this. So mm -hmm. like, I'm glad this is how it ended. Me but too. if this were made today, we'd probably get a spinoff of like them being like international hitmen 
hunting Nazis. Or like some disaster I mean, movie in the about. 70s or something with them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so getting back to when Ilsa and Rick first meet, I'm going to play something that I found so funny and I feel like is so relatable. But we can talk about more of how they meet in a second. Maybe uh, my choice for best dramatic scene should be considered an action scene. But the drama of the moment I'm about to show you is as dramatic, I will submit, as any in the history of film. Again, I go to Stanley Kubrick and to the critical moment in his 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968, in which in the greatest jump cut in movie history, a primitive man's weapon, a bone, becomes another weapon, a satellite carrying bombs. I think the proper response to that scene has always been, wow. I'm not sure, though, that it's drama, because it seems to me that drama involves dialogue and people. I mean, that would have been my assumption in choosing for this category. Maybe you've kind of stretched the category a little bit. But, Roger, I thought of drama as an emotional moment that wasn't somebody knocking somebody out or something uh -huh. like that in action yeah. uh, uh -huh. or a chase. I mean, you know that sequence. You, you probably remember where you were when you first saw it. I that. sure do. I was in the theater. Uh, my favorite dramatic scene <laughs> is one that never, ever fails to send chills down my spine, and I mean that literally. It moves me so deeply, it defines the appeal of the movies for me. My scene is the first meeting between Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. Now, we know there is a song that Bogart doesn't want Dewey Wilson to play. We don't know why. Bergman walks into Rick's place and recognizes the piano player and asks him to play the song. He doesn't want to, but he does. Now, I said in introducing that scene that chills go down my spine when I watch it. You and I both have a personal code that we never use these critics' phrases, such as, I, I laughed cried, I cried. until I fell on the floor, I cried until I thought my heart would break. We never report physical responses that do not take place. So I am assuring you that an actual, an actual chill really does go down my spine every time I see that scene. It's like the Star Spangled Banner at a basketball game. It really thrills me. I think what people are missing is complications in love story. Mm -hmm. Think about um, the picture of Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas attacking each other mm -hmm. in bed. That's what love is in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. This is what love was in the 40s, mm -hmm. and we launched it. It's also that. what drama was, too, because actually the reason these two people broke up and the reason they're not going to get back together has to do with the fact that the problems of a couple of little people don't make how does it go aren't worth a hill of beans yeah. in a world like ours so what you're saying is you're siskel and i'm ebert yes. <laughs> great amazing i died in the way that ebert sasses him in the beginning and calls that not a dramatic moment i was like Oh my god, this is us. Well, oh yeah, I've done that. And the 2001 reference too, that's so yeah, great. You would pick that. Good. Yeah, and I would pick this. <laughs> well, I agree with Ebert. I actually, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it just, it does kind of throttle you in a way. I don't know if it sends a chill down my spine, but it comes close. It's one where when they look at each other and when Sam gives rick that look first and he's like i told you not to play this this song mm -hmm. which of course is a beautiful song and and then you see that look it is just it's electric there's anger there's love there's passion there's confusion shock all of these emotions coming together from these two actors you feel that and if that spark isn't there the romance doesn't work at all and I think that comment about it being what romance is like in the 40s is spot on. And I think it's part of the reason why this movie has persisted and has been held up as one of the classics, romantic classics from the period, for sure. And when he goes over to their table and Victor is there mm -hmm. too, and he sits down and gets a drink and you're like, oh, he is thrown off. You know, he never drinks with customers. He doesn't sit down with them. He's off on his own. He's neutral. Suddenly, that's gone. Which the captain remarks on as well, that this is like a really important moment that he's sitting down. But I love this scene too, because it's more of like a sound effect. It's not really score, but I feel like the score in this movie is also really mm -hmm. good. It heightens all of those elements, the drama, the romance. I think the way as time goes by is composed is also really moving and adds the romantic depth that we want to feel between these characters. So yeah, everything is just heightened and we can see with just a glance 
what each of these characters is feeling. So I feel like the editing, everything is just perfectly done here and tells us all we have to know without any words. Exactly. Also, the score done by Max Steiner, who also did Gone with the Wind, which is a fantastic score as well. Very moving. Always makes me cry. (laughs) So he has a knack for these types of romantic, dramatic scores, certainly. And talking about Gone with the Wind, because I had a question about this too. So Ingrid Bergman was contracted under Selznick Mm -hmm. and how Wallace, the producer of Casablanca, traded Olivia de Havilland for Bergman. So I'm assuming de Havilland made Gone with the Wind with Selznick, even though that was 39, that was before they produced this. Yeah. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that they traded these actresses to make this movie happen too. Wow. And we have two of the biggest movies made within the span of a few years. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though, because I can't see Bergman in Gone with the Wind or Olivia de Havilland in Casablanca. I feel like Mm -hmm. Ingrid Bergman just is Casablanca in the way that Humphrey Bogart is too. Like you can't imagine, at least I can't imagine this film with anyone else. Like you, you hear the stories, like the casting rumors, Ronald Reagan, that rumor for Rick for Casablanca. Yeah. So one, it's interesting to consider like, would American politics be better today if Reagan were never president? Yes, they would. But also would he have not run for president if he did Casablanca, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe he wouldn't have gotten into politics, but that really was just a rumor. It's kind of, it's baseless. I think it was just for studio publicity. Uh, But yeah, if you, if you look into facts around the movie and who was, you know, considered, you'll come across the name Ronald Reagan, but the Noah Eisenberg book gets into this a little bit and how that was probably false. Dennis Quaid, was he considered? (laughs) Dennis Quaid, oh my god, that Reagan movie, oh my god. Okay, so I guess getting back, we got a few listener questions, we can ask this here because we're talking about Rick and, you know, if we like him or not, but the futurist asked, Would Sophia make the same decision that Ilsa makes at the finale? One, I love Paul Henreid. I specifically love him in Now Voyager, where he does the double cigarette smoking scene and passes one to Betty Davis. It is so hot. I just, I love it so much. But, you know, we didn't really talk that much about Victor Laszlo, but he's a hero. He's smart. I don't know, like he's a leader of a political movement. That's way more attractive to me than some guy I liked in Paris for a little while. I don't know. I feel like also you with with Victor, I think he kind of gets the reputation as like the vanilla boring one who she doesn't really love and that Rick is this forbidden love from her past who is this like American bar owner. I don't know. I, I think I'm more attracted to the Victor Laszlo story. I feel like he just, he has it together. Like he can lead people. Like in the, my, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, the rendition of the Marseillaise, when he starts leading people in that, that to me is more attractive than anything Rick does in the entire movie. So I would go with Victor Laszlo. I think it's the practical decision. I think that it's what the, it's the decision I would make nine times out of 10. You also like, it's kind of your responsibility in a way to stick with him. I also wouldn't want to stay in Casablanca. I mean, in a way, I guess it's not really her decision. Like Rick is the one telling her to leave and she is deciding that she wants to be with Rick. But it's interesting how they contrast these characters because I feel like being the wife of somebody who is constantly being sought out to be killed by the Nazis... That would be such a hard life compared to someone who owns a bar, who has settled down, who doesn't want to go anywhere, do anything else, does this. I'm surprised that even Rick getting that couple the money, Mm -hmm. like when he rigs the game of roulette and gets them all the money, I feel like that's a big moment for him too and showing his soft side. And again, the captain notes this too, that this is like a big moment. No, and I like Rick. I really do. And I, I find a lot of what he does admirable. I'm just saying, there's a war on. Like, I'm going to help. <laughs> I don't know. I feel a duty to help Victor in every way that I could. If that's like keeping, you know, being his wife, yeah, I, I would do mm. it. But I understand the impulse to pick Rick. This is also referenced in When Harry Met Sally in a great scene. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, and you mentioned Laszlo. 
which I think is interesting that you like Henry because Bergman called him a prima donna on set and nobody like really liked him on set. Yeah, he was kind of criticized for this movie. He wasn't at this point in his career, too. I think he wanted to be a filmmaker. I don't know. It's it's interesting to hear those types of stories because his reputation, I think, around the film is nowhere near as strong as the others. He also didn't get along well with Bogart either. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's it's interesting. But yeah, he had pretty interesting career um later on you know he was an actor like we've talked about a bit for a good while um but he also was a director too and directed a number of films throughout the 50s into the 60s as well but yeah it's i don't know i really do think my interest in him as a romantic lead really did start with now voyager which i saw at a very formative age so we haven't really talked about this much as an oscar movie yet but this was a big oscar movie it won three oscars Best Picture, Best Director for Michael Curtiz, and Best Screenplay. It was nominated for five others. Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart, Supporting Actor for Claude Rains, Cinematography Black and White, Film Editing, and Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture. We got a listener question from Chelsea. Rank this among your favorite Best Picture winners. It's definitely in the top third for me. I'm going through right now and like trying to make my list, but I would at least say in the top 20. That might be like shocking. I feel like it's going to be top five or 10 for you. This is my number three. (laughs) Okay. So it's really high. Um, The only two movies above it are The Godfather and All About Eve. I actually have a lot of really old films or older films in my top 10. The most recent film I have in my top 10 is... Silence of the Lambs. But yeah, I have a lot of old ones, like The Best Years of Our Lives, Rebecca, Lawrence of Arabia. So I do love the classic Hollywood winners. But yeah, this is this is a really good one. I think just thinking of it as a Best Picture winner, it really holds up. I think for any generation watching it today, if you want to introduce classic cinema to someone, this is a really good place to start. I love its political themes and the romance at the center. And I love how in Michael Curtiz films, I think a lot about the performances and about the actors. And I really, you know, you you just cannot think about classic film without thinking of Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart. And they really just are the stars for me. Like this movie is about Mm -hmm. them as much as it's about anything else, which I think is why it's kind of interesting that Curtiz won director for this. And I know one of the main criticisms of the movie, and I don't think I would consider it a criticism necessarily, but it, maybe it's why it's not as high up for some people when they're thinking of like the greatest films of all time is because his direction, he doesn't really have a style that is easily recognizable, like some of the auteurs. Like you think about like Orson Welles or William Wyler, who was supposed to direct Casablanca. I'm actually mm-hmm. really curious what his Casablanca would look like. I think it would be really good, honestly. Yeah, I would have loved that. I feel like it would maybe even be better just because he's... A favorite of ours for sure. I love Weiler. But but I feel like Curtiz is just like a solid, solid director when it comes to films like this. Like he did Mildred Pierce too. He was kind of just known at the time for being able to direct a lot of these studio movies and to get them out quickly. And I think there are a lot of reasons why the film works. His direction is definitely one of them as well. But I always think of other elements of the film before I think of his direction. Yeah, and it was interesting reading that you know, when you think of the cinematography, which is tied into the direction, mm-hmm. like remembering shots like, yes, we just watched this movie, but there's no single shot that really sticks out unless it's like a close up or a sequence or an edit. And he really wanted to use the cinematography and the direction for the story and not for any single shot. It's I mean, it's definitely it's not as impressive visually, maybe as some of the other films mm-hmm. from the time. But I do think Arthur Edison's work, he also worked on The Maltese Falcon. It's similar in that way. You have a lot of shots with shadows. Like when you think about Rick and Ilsa meeting late at night in that room and you get that noir feel. I like that. I think in the way, again, that he lights Bergman, I think is really memorable. But yeah, it's it's interesting to think about it in contrast with other classic films that maybe have a more recognizable, more impressive visual style. Yeah, I will say I love the production design Mm -hmm. of the film. I think from those first moments, which were directed by Don Siegel, who did the opening sequence and 
the invasion of France. But I feel like even getting that tower that was painted and that pan down, and then you see this street that is just filled to the brim with people walking and street vendors and animals. Like, there's so much happening in every frame. Later on in the blue parrot, you have the actual parrot. And I love its play with noir and the chiaroscuro and all the lighting. In every background of every frame, you have shadows of something. And there's a shot of Signor Ferrari and you have the parrot in shadow behind him. And later on in the film, when Ilsa's in Rick's room and he brings Carl up to take her home and you see the door open and the light just illuminates her figure and then he sees her i feel like it's just so smart and how it either reveals characters or details i mean we could talk about ricks and how the bar is designed and how that works with different scenes and when ugarti tries to flee and shoots back into the club you know it's just the design of things and i think that like really adds to why this film is really impressive too yeah i love the production design too they also use something called aperture framing which is when frames are used within shot composition. So classic examples are like doorways or if you see windows and characters are framed within them. Deacons does this a lot. Um, Gordon Willis does this a lot. But I like the way that the production design, specifically in Rick's and then outside of Rick's, early on in the film, when you see the officers inspecting the papers of that Frenchman and his papers are expired, um, you you get a lot of that. And it's, it's a really, I think it's an interesting way to see how these characters feel confined within particular spaces. So that's a really smart mm-hmm. way, I think, that the production design is used and the cinematography to show how these characters can't escape and how being able to leave is everything. And while they're waiting to leave, they're in a space that is vibrant and exciting, like Rick's or like the Blue Parrot, but it's constricting at the same time. So one of the big wins was for the screenplay. And kind of like we mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of history behind that of who created what, if there's a lot of improv. So this script by the Epstein twins, they were kind of known for what they called adding zip to the script. And I think they certainly did this. And that's why this script is so memorable, not just because of the quotes, but about the humor that we get throughout and how it's really, really quick and it moves really fast. But I'm curious. I think we have to go through some of our favorite quotes. What is your favorite quote in the movie? We can go through a few, I think. One that isn't necessarily the most memorable from the film, but I think is hilarious is when Captain Raynal is at the table before Rick and Elsa first meet. But he is saying to Elsa who Rick is, trying to explain who he is. And he's like, well, he's the kind of man that if I were a woman and I weren't around, I should be in love with Rick. <laughs> I think the the pacing is really fast. Like it's... <laughs> Here we go. Say it. Not me. <laughs> Oh, God, not me making another Gilmore Girls reference <laughs> to Casablanca. <laughs> when Bogart is involved in a movie, Ay-y-y-y. it just makes you think of Gilmore Girls. <laughs> it's not even his delivery necessarily, but God, wow. Anyway, um, the pacing is fast and the delivery, everything is quick. Mm-hmm. And the way he says this, I had to pause and like think of like what he was saying, but... Yeah, I think it's just funny. And again, it's playing on his sexuality a little bit without explicitly saying anything. Mm-hmm. That is a good one. I have to mention, of all the gin joints and all the towns and all the world, she walked into mine. That's so good. It's mm-hmm. just like, how is it's... she here? Like, how did this happen? You yeah, know, it's just... That's the best one. It's so good. I love that. And according to some Bogart biographies, he came up with it. We don't know if that's true or not, hmm. but according to some historians, that is the, that's the tale as well as here's looking at you, kid. Can you imagine if he just came up with like two of the best lines in the movie? He apparently said that to Bergman on set and they used that in that way. I'm not a big fan of here's looking at you, kid. I do not want my partner calling me kid in like a romantic way. Oh, this is. This is I don't get this. This is controversial. I love it. I think it's really sweet. It's like I think it's cute. I do like and appreciate how it's used throughout the film because he says it, I think, 
four times Mm -hmm. and each time there's a slightly different emotion behind it and the way that she reacts to him saying this is slightly different so i appreciate it in that way and we get to see this transformation of this relationship between them but i i don't love kid did you watch girls yeah i like when adam calls hannah kid i think it's a look it's a riff on this Hmm. but yeah sorry to bring up girls when we're talking about casablanca but i i like this quote (laughs) i think it's nice um we mentioned louis i think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship which is the perfect way to end Mm -hmm. the movie what was the original quote yeah wallace had suggested two possible lines the other one was louis i might have known you'd mix your patriotism with a little larceny Mm. which does not roll off the tongue as much it does not my other favorite i'll say just from a writing perspective major stressor has been shot perfect use of passive voice incredible i normally hate passive voice and don't think it should be used but this is the perfect use of it and how it can work really well to show how renault has changed as a character and the relationship between him and rick after rick has shot Mm -hmm. major stressor love that love round up the usual suspects of course that follows I like there's a quote from Senior Ferrari. It says, it would take a miracle to get you out of Casablanca and the Germans outlawed miracles. It just shows like the dire nature of Casablanca Mm -hmm. and these people and trying to get out of it. Another one at the end is Rick's last line to Laszlo before they see each other on the runway. But he says, it seems that destiny has taken a hand when Laszlo gets arrested for having now those exit visas and being an accessory like the captain says but this was tricky to me my first time because rick has this little smize on his face and he it seems a little malicious and you think that rick really is going to take ilsa away and sell out laszlo but it is not the one that ebert mentioned that it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world i think that's a good way to sum up this movie and what it does and i also like casey robinson who is a producer director but he wrote to wallace before filming began he said quote for now in doing so he is not just solving a love triangle he is forcing the girl to live up to the idealism of her nature forcing her to carry on with the work that in these days is far more important than the love of two little people and that kind of is why Rick decides or Ilsa decides that she is going to go with Laszlo because, you know, there's a greater purpose than just her and Rick being holed up in a bar for the rest of their lives together and happy and in love. And, you know, you, the heroism in the face of adversity, I think, is and was and is now the bigger threat and evil that needed to be tackled. Yeah. I think moving into more questions that we got about the Oscars and the movie. So Kay Flea 208 asked, why do you think Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman didn't win Oscars for these roles? I know that The Song of Bernadette had 12 nominations and For Whom the Bell Tolls had nine. Oh. (laughs) You have thoughts. I do have thoughts. I do have thoughts. (laughs) This was also a year of 10 Best Picture nominees again, but I haven't seen Watch on the Rhine or The Song of Bernadette. Are those, like, big performances? Uh, I mean, I think it makes... Bigger performances? I mean, I think it makes sense that Jennifer Jones won that year for The Song of Bernadette, just because that was a really, I think, a a big movie, and she is good in it Mm -hmm. as well, and she's playing, like, a religious icon, so it sort of makes sense, I think, that she won, and, you know, with ingrid berkman being nominated for for whom the bell tolls like she couldn't get nominated for casablanca in a just world she is nominated for casablanca instead ilsa is one of her if not the most iconic role of her career it's one of her best performances for whom the bell tolls i would call borderline unwatchable it is a very very tough movie to get through and with bogart i think he should have won for this I, I, I don't know. I think it's it's pretty clear to me. I mean, looking at the other nominees that we had in the category, we had Gary Cooper, your favorite for For Whom the Bell Tolls, mm-hmm. <laughs> Paul Lucas, who won for Watch on the Rhine, Walter Pidgeon for Madame Curie, and Mickey Rooney for The Human Comedy. I haven't seen The Human Comedy. Walter Pidgeon, I mean, Greer Garson steals the show away from him again in that not that that's a great movie either mrs miniver is far better than madame curie which is 
another one for you that I would stay away from. But I think it makes sense that Paul Lucas won, I guess, because he'd been working in the industry for a lot longer than Humphrey Bogart. And this was a stretch for Humphrey Bogart to play a romantic lead, like we've mentioned. And Lucas was, you know, he he was a term that we will say, that we say on our show many times throughout the season. He was what they would call overdue. So, mm-hmm. and it, it's there a big role too. So I, I get it, but I would have gone with Humphrey Bogart for sure. I think this should be one of his wins. And the next question from the same listener, they asked, who would you cast for a modern day remake? Who would you want to direct it? This is really, really hard. One, no one should remake Casablanca. <laughs> Let's just get that out there before we answer this question. No one should remake it. But if we are casting a modern day remake, I think Barry Jenkins would be a great director for this. I think he could handle the perfect blend of politics and romance and do that really well. I also think the score would be great. Like everything would work. Mm-hmm. I think of like I James Bertel score. Bertel score, James Laxton's cinematography. Yes. Amazing. For the cast, it's so tricky. I landed on a few options for each one. Rick, you need someone who has like a little bit of an edge to him. So I actually think Daniel Kaluuya would be a really good Rick. Interesting. I think he also can't be too tall because I went with Adam Driver first because I feel like he makes sense as like this like bar owner who's sort of neutral. You have to imagine the guy can get into a bar fight. He can hold his own who has mm. his walls up. So that's why I went to Adam Driver first, but I think he's too tall. I think you need someone a little bit shorter. Well, that's funny because there was a height problem between Bergman and Bogart, and they had to like lift him up literally during shots to make him look taller than her because she was taller than him. I think it was by a few inches. But yeah, I wouldn't go that tall. But my one person that I felt most strongly about for any of these characters, I would say Oscar Isaac for Rick. I was also trying to think of a Rick that maybe I would have fallen for more easily, Mm -hmm. that maybe I would have chosen Rick in the end, and maybe that's why I would like him. But I feel like he can still play reserved Mm -hmm. pretty well and mysterious, and I think that's more of Rick than maybe more steely. Mm. No, I, I agree. I think he would be good. I would just, in that case, I would pick Rick every time, I'm sure. Like, is Idris Elba too hot for that, too? Oh. I feel like he would be... He would be a good... He would be a good Rick. I think he's a little old probably now, but he... Yeah, he would have been a really good Rick. Because he has that kind of, like, attitude, too. You need someone who has a bit of an attitude to play Rick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. All good options. What about Ilsa? I mean, you need someone that just takes your breath away. And yeah. I keep thinking of Emma Stone. I don't know why... I think she's too funny for this role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Jennifer Lawrence either. Who do you have for her? This was the hardest one. I thought you almost have to think of like a... Because she's so beautiful and she's European. For her, you really can't go with an American. So I I have a couple, but none of them are quite right, honestly, for who has mm-hmm. that sort of old Hollywood beauty. Like, I just, I, I really don't know. Could Leia Seydoux do this part? Or like Eva Green? Mm-hmm. Like I went to Bond Girls a lot to like the, okay. <laughs> the yeah, French. I mean, she's not French, but I went to like those sorts of names. Lily James could maybe do it. Zendaya? I was wondering if you would pick Zendaya. So far, we're two for two with Dune. I'm not recasting Dune, <laughs> no. That wasn't the point. <laughs> Lupita Nyong'o could maybe do it. I thought about her too. She has that sort of glamour. Zendaya, yeah, she she does, I think. Penelope Cruz, I think she's a little too old for the part now, mm-hmm. but she has but that kind of I look. Yeah. I feel like people would probably lean towards, if they actually were remaking this, Scarlett Johansson or Margot Robbie. I think that's where it would actually oh, Margot, go. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. But for Victor Laszlo, I did have a couple of good options, of course. I think Tom Hiddleston could do it. I think that um, Alexander Skarsgård would be a really good Laszlo. He's tall. I think he could come across with a lot of authority. I also thought of Matthew Good. Do you know who that is? He's British. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he could do it too. Oh, you know who could be Rick? Paul Meskel. Ooh. Because he has that kind of like sad boy Mm -hmm. thing going. (laughs) But he could own a bar. I I see it. What about Colin Farrell for either of them? I feel like Paul could be either, too. Colin Farrell has the right 
energy for Rick, though, I think. I think he could really do it. Mm-hmm. He also has, like, the dark hair and dark eyebrows like Humphrey Bogart does. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Now for Laszlo, I just want, like, a blonde guy. That's why I want Skarsgård. Um, okay. Our next question from the Futurist. Who does Nick most identify with? Rick, Renault, Victor, Laszlo, Ugarte, Carl, the waiter. Okay, my favorite character is Carl. He is <laughs> He's great. so funny. It's comic relief. He's necessary because he knows all the characters. Mm -hmm. Like, I love when he sits down with that couple and they say they're only speaking English and it's this very broken English that only they can understand each other. When the robber bumps into him and he checks all of his pockets, it's just, oh, I love him so much. Um, This was hard because I feel like I can relate to a few of them. I would say mostly Rick and Renaud. Rick partially his like constantly furrowed brow (laughs) but i think the way he interacts with elsa in like recounting their relationship too i i can understand that a lot probably him more so than reno but i like reno and how he kind of teeters the line there's some comedy there with him too Mm -hmm. who do you identify with oh my gosh um besides elsa if that's a thing uh, i mean None of of the men. (laughs) I don't know. I probably am a Reno. I'm not a Rick, I don't think. I I don't have intense walls up like that, like Rick does. Hmm. I feel like he's the most cancer of the characters. He is a cancer, I think. (laughs) Or a Scorpio. I definitely, though, I do have some Rick-like qualities. If what happened to Rick happened to me, I think I would probably do something similar. As in just, like, fall off the earth. And just <laughs> go own a bar somewhere and just forget about everything. I understand mm-hmm. Rick really well. Like, I just get him. But I don't think I'm as sad. At least not today. <laughs> Next question from Emily. She asked, which minor role sticks out to you the most? I mean, the supporting cast is great. I love this ensemble. I think all the characters are so well written and fun. But Ugarti for sure, is like the one I always come back to. I was also thinking if he did a modern day version of this, I would pick Kieran Culkin to play him. He's just like, (laughs) just a character. And just to be introduced to him in the way that we are like that right Mm -hmm. away. I think, you know, Peter Laurie is also always fantastic. And I love that. And then I would probably say Carl the Waiter too, for the comedy purely. He's just such a funny observer kind of from the side. And he always has fun little quips. So I would say either of those two. Mm And then we had two questions from David Metzger. Is this film the most retroactively underrated, overrated classic film of all time? And can we bring back the champagne cocktail? Do you like a champagne cocktail? Is there something else in a champagne cocktail? Yeah, like a French 75. I was going to say French 75s I love, Mm -hmm. yes. I love a champagne cocktail. I think they're great. It's like a spritz, too. Love that. Yeah, champagne does give me a headache, so I can't have too many. Um, (laughs) But I do like a champagne cocktail. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I would love to bring them back. So I think what the first question is saying is, you know, is this film one that, that is now considered underrated, even though it's on high up on a lot of lists? I would say no. I don't think it's overrated either, but I think it's appropriately rated in that it's beloved and talked about a lot, but I don't think it's for the wrong reasons or anything. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think it's right in the right place um, on all those lists. It deserves to be as high up. It lives up to the hype for me. I think if people are like knocking on it or something or don't think it deserves to be up there, then I guess you could you know, consider it to be somewhat underrated. But I don't think you really can get much better than where it is in the canon of classic Hollywood cinema. Yeah, I mean, 80 years. I don't know. It's... We'll have a couple episodes this season coming of some 100th anniversaries and thinking about film only being around for 100 years. And this was 80 years ago. So it's, I mean, the majority of that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just crazy to think of in terms of the timeline of where Hollywood is today and at the time. So yeah, it really is fascinating that it's held up for so long. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would absolutely give this Best Picture, yes. I know that we tend to stay away from Best Picture as our answer for this and go for another category. If I had to pick another element that I think is the best, it is 100% the screenplay. I think the screenplay is 
fantastic. I also think how it came together is so interesting when you just think about cinema history and the fact that this was not supposed to be a movie that was any big deal. It was just supposed to be, like you said, a movie that the studios pushed out like anything else that year. And the screenplay for me, in addition to the performances, of course, but the screenplay is what gives it its staying power. It moves. There's no fat on it. Like I said, I just, I feel like the screenplay is perfect and one of my favorites in history. What about you? Just to go with something different, because that would probably be a close second for me. I'm going to say Art Direction, and it wasn't even nominated here, which I don't agree with. But I think the cinematography, too, the black and white really holds up. I love all of the shadows and how the set plays with all of that, like I mentioned earlier. But I think it adds an important depth to the location of Casablanca and how we feel about the surroundings. And like you said, that confinement, that constriction of being here sometimes indefinitely. And they say that in the script too, of people can't leave and they're just stuck here. So I love that everything is packed. The streets are packed. Rick's is always packed every night. And we see that back room and the smoke. And again, the the cinematography and how all of that plays in. So yeah, I think it's just an, another important element that really worked out. I think so too. Well, that was our season four premiere on the 80th anniversary of Casablanca. If you haven't seen Casablanca yet, it is available on Blu-ray, physical media. You can also stream it on HBO Max. I highly recommend this movie. I think that we both recommend watching it. And I'm glad that we got to do this for our first episode. This was a lot of fun talking about one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah, it was an amazing start. I love this. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be celebrating the recent EGOT winner, Viola Davis. So we'll be talking about all of her awards, at least briefly, but then talking about all of her nominations and her win as well. Her new movie, Air, Ben Affleck's next (laughs) directorial feature, is out right now in theaters. Go see it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about her and her career and her Oscar nominations. And if you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show and want to check out our bonus content, you can find that at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. And I'm excited for a great season four. We have a lot of fun coming up this season, so I'm really excited for some of these episodes we have on the calendar. So am I. Yeah, I can't wait. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you very soon. Bye.